Welcome to Bibliography, a podcast for people who love a good to-be-read list. I'm David Kern here at Goldberry Books in Concord, North Carolina. And this is a conversation show about the ways books make our lives richer. This week's guest is beloved novelist James Lee Burke. Best known for his Dave Robichaux series of novels, Burke is a New York Times bestselling author many times over who has been awarded two Edgar Awards for Best Novel, as well as the Grand Master Award by the Mystery Writers of America. And given his propensity for larger-than-life characters in an ever-changing America, it's no surprise that Burke's lived an eventful and varied life. He was born in Houston in 1936, and he grew up on the Texas-Louisiana Gulf Coast. He taught in four universities, one community college, and the Job Corps. He was also a caseworker in California with former felons and migrant farm workers and the criminally insane. He was a pipeliner in Texas, a landman for Sinclair Oil Company in Louisiana, a surveyor in Colorado, a long-distance truck driver, and a newspaper reporter. Famously, he finished his first novel, Half of Paradise, when he was just 23, but it took many years uh, bouncing around and publishing Purgatory before it eventually found a home. But that didn't mean his writing career was off and running just like that. Shortly thereafter, he published two more novels before submitting a manuscript titled The Lost Get Back Boogie, which took nine years to get published. It was rejected more than 111 times. As Burke describes on his website, it was during this period that he met his agent, Philip Spitzer, who was driving a cab in Hell's Kitchen at night and running a one-man agency during the day. Spitzer helped this book find a home, and when The Lost Get Back Boogie was finally published by Louisiana State University Press, it was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Burke's novels have been translated into almost every language in the world, and his stories of the Deep South and the American West make him an essential American novelist of the last half century. In particular, his first Dave Robichaux novel, Neon Rain, is one of my favorite crime novels. Burke's newest book came out this fall, and it's called Another Kind of Eden. It's described as a captivating tale of justice, love, brutality, and mysticism set in the turbulent 1960s. And for my money, it's well worth a read this fall. It's rollicking and weird in exactly the right sort of ways, while also featuring the precise prose that did lead to one publication calling him America's best novelist. Mr. Burke was kind enough to chat recently about his career and the books that inspired it. Here's that conversation. Hope you enjoy it and find some books to add to your own to be read list. First of all, thank you so much for being here. This is it's a it's an honor for me to get to chat with you, and uh, I'm very, like I said, I'm very excited. Well, same here. I appreciate it. So here's my first question: Do you remember the first time that you fell in love with a book? The first time that a book just captured your imagination? Well, yeah, it was the Hardy Boy books back oh, yeah. during the war years. The uh, bookmobile would come around. Oh, all kids love Nancy. Drew and the Hardy Boys. <laughs> that was my first introduction to where I, I would have called literature. Yeah. And so do you think that like when you're working on the books you're working on now, which obviously have many of them have some kind of a mystery at their core, do you feel like you're, you know, looking back at your love for those books and that's, you know, that's informing or inspiring the books that you're writing now? Well, I guess so. Uh, what's interesting about the success of the Hardy Boy books, because all kids of my generation remember those books. They sold millions of copies. And I don't know if you know the story. They were written by a man who hated the Hardy Boy books. <laughs> and I forget his name. Was, I think his name was Dixon. Franklin yeah. Dixon was it was a pseudonym, but he was dead broke. And I think he was given a contract to write two Hardy Boy books for a total sum of $250. And mm. he took the contract and it bought enough coal for him to get to the winter. And that's how he survived during the depression. And he, he just, he just gritted his teeth to bite these books that made all of us kids so happy. And then later in life, he became a screenwriter. It's about 1968 for the series uh, uh, Ponderosa. What is it? Uh, what was the name of it? Was oh, God. Bonanza? A little Bonanza. Yeah. Bonanza. <laughs> Not an artistic series, but yeah. anyway. I mean, 
kind of ridiculous <laughs> western. <laughs> it wasn't even a western. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it really felt great satisfaction in, as an artist and a writer for having been part of that series. <laughs> and he still despised the Hardy Boy books. <laughs> oh, thank you. It's, not, it's, it's, it's hilarious because ironically those are two things that i grew up loving the hardy boys and bonanza well you know those well, i mean there's there's a reason for the success of, of bonanza and uh, the man who created that series uh, said something i never forgot i was watching an interview with it many years ago and he was asked the question how did you create the longest running series, Western series in television history? And his answer was, we created characters whom an average American family felt comfortable inviting into their living rooms on Saturday e uh, Sunday evening. Hmm. What a lie. What sentence. That's it. In other words, be aware of your reader or your audience. You know what John uh, Houston always said? He admonished his, the people who were his, he had always had young movie people around, or people, young people who wanted to be movie people. Mm -hmm. uh, he always said, respect your audience. You have to respect your audience. Herman Melville, first line, most famous first line in American literature, call me Ishmael. So, so the idea of, you know, respect your audience, is that something that, you know, is that one of those things you have stamped on a bulletin board in your office or wherever you write? I mean, how does that work? What, what does that mean as an, as an author? You know, what kind of, how does that inform your choices that you're making as you're writing? That's a good question. You should carry it with you. You should take it to your art rather than discover it within your art. You do not, uh, just in the same way, you do not, uh, assail the sensibilities of others. That's, hmm. that's, that's very important just in our lives. Now, in part, we suffer a terrible consequence of the 1960s with all of its positives. The civility went out the window and we're probably not going to get it back. But you cannot assail the sensibilities of your viewer or your, your listener or your reader. Number two, if an artist is really an artist, he brings with him a <clears throat> uh, consciousness of what is good in people, what is best in people. You always address yourself to what is best in your listener or your reader. You do not aim at anything less than that. Put it this way. You learn that, say, as a teacher. Do not address maybe the level of information in your class. Address what should be the level of information or intelligence. In other words, you set the bar up here. And in effect, people are drawn to it. Mm. But you never, you, you never, all right. Same fellow who told the story about the uh, bonanza and the reasons for success I think he wrote a book called The Cool Fire. And he said, to be successful in commercial television entertainment, you have to create a fire like the fire in an ancient cave during hmm. prehistoric times. Hmm. A fire that pr produces a and an acceptable level of warmth. It's comforting, it's protecting, but it does not throw sparks and burn. And so people feel comfortable sitting next to the fire. You make a contract with your listener and your reader, whereby you're telling, let's just say reader, telling reader, we're telling the reader, I respect you, I will not, uh, upset you. I will not threaten you. I will not do something that embarrasses you in your living room. Mm. Your children can sit out there in the living room. Even though, let's say, you're writing a crime story. That's that's not the problem. It's Look, there's a very famous writer, uh, and, 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 and 
I have great respect for his work. It's not just one, but there are others. But this one, I, I've always wanted to talk to him to say, look, hey, you know, take some tweezers and start pulling out some of the adjectives. But this, this fellow is, anyway, it's a piece of glass right in the middle of, of the page. Why do it? Because this is where I feel. I remember, it, I think it was McKinley Cantor, the Southern writer, the historical writer. Hmm. I went to a banquet for him in 1956 in a college situation in Louisiana. And the title of his address to the banquet guest was The Lost Art of Profanity. And he said, it is not the profanity that is the problem. It is the misuse of it. It should work for you. Look at the Godfather. You hear all this bad language without without feeling you really heard all this bad language because it belongs there. That's the difference. Hmm. Do you ever feel like you have to toe a line between, you, you know, challenging, um, challenging your reader's sensibilities to use the word that you used earlier without, oh, I, 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 excuse me, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you said you don't want to assail the sensibilities. Um, but it seems like there's a difference between, you know, challenging a reader uh, giving them material that is maybe challenging them or or pushing them to have better taste or something like that, that seems different than assailing the sensibilities. Is that, Would you agree with that? <clears throat> well, I, I wouldn't try to manipulate. I, I know you didn't mean this word, mm-hmm. to manipulate, but <clears throat> art is art. Art justifies itself. Mm. You know, it's the... <clears throat> If the artist is invested in his art, if he's invested in what I consider the purpose of art, which in effect is to make the world a better place, these other things will not be problems. They won't, mm. He won't even think of these things. Mm. Mm. Take a guy like Jackson Pollock flinging the paint at the canvas. This is actually a violent act. But it's inconsequential because of the consequences, which is beauty. Hmm. That's what an artist does. Artist breaks all the rules. He he is the ultimate iconoclast. My father used to always say that if you find yourself doing things everybody else is doing, change what you're doing. <laughs> okay, so I was going to ask you, like, in terms of breaking the rules, an artist breaks all the rules, you said. Do you have to do that yeah. as a writer? Are you conscious of breaking rules? No, you got to get you got to get rid of self consciousness. That's a, the ego is the worst is the worst enemy every artist has. Hmm. This is the way I, I think the most pernicious words in the voca- our vocabulary for an artist are are pronouns are e- me my mine mine and myself. Hmm. And I, I get I in there. Okay, but those are bad words. That's real profanity. <laughs> humility is not a virtue with an artist. It is a necessity. Mm. Why? Because <clears throat> as soon as a person begins to claim credit for the talent that he has, is the day he's about to lose it. Never have seen the exception. Humility is not a virtue with an artist. It's a necessity. That's that's my feeling. I'm writing that one down. <laughs> I'll go in a notebook somewhere. So we, I asked you about, uh, you know, of the first books that you that you loved, and, and you mentioned the Hardy Boys. Were there other books that, um, you know, you look back at what you read as a child, and and you see them as having inspired you to become a writer? The Hardy Boys you mentioned. What else was there? Richard Halliburton's. Uh, Books for boys and girls. That's that was the title of his book, of his books and his writing. Richard Halliburton was an adventurer, mm. and back in the thirties and forties, and he wrote these marvels for for kids. All kids in my generation. That's you know during the depression or people born in the depression. Remember Richard Halliburton? <laughs> he went and knocked on Ernest. Hemingway's 
door in Cuba and introduced himself as, hello, I'm Richard Halliburton, the adventurer. And <laughs> what Hemingway did, uh, Hemingway said, because he was, Hemingway's trying to work. He didn't know this guy. And guy didn't call in advance. So Hemingway said, knew the day was blown. He said, okay, let's go down here to La, La Florida. That was the bar. <laughs> he got plastered at every day. Take him to, <laughs> took the guy down there, then introduced him to the bar as, this is Richard Halliburton, the adventurer, and I don't care what you do with him, and walked off and left him there. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, I wonder what the rest of Richard Halliburton's day was like. <laughs> <laughs> well, he got, I, you know, anyway, he got lost in that storm. He died. He was sailing. He, uh, you know, he guy really had guts. He tried to sail, I guess, by himself. Or, mm. uh, it was across the uh, Atlantic, and he got lost in the storm. Mm. But anyway, uh, actually, if I were to put together a book on how to write fiction, the person I would make use of is Ernest Hemingway. Few have ever said as many things so accurate about writing. Mm. Hemingway, everything Hemingway said about writing is always, when he talked about himself, he, you know, he had problems and been grandiose, mm. but not about art, that he always got it right. Mm. And it's interesting because, you know, he never went to college. His mentor was Oh, if anybody, uh, Sherwood Anderson, hmm. maybe, and, uh, you know, uh, the lady, uh, you know, my heavens, uh, you know, oh, God. Oh, Stein? She was, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and when we had a fall, excuse me. Well, when you had, when you look at Hemingway's ideas on writing that are so valuable, do you, can you think of a couple of principles that mean the most to you from, from his, his thoughts on, on the art, on the craft? He said, never underestimate the power of a simple declarative sentence. Mm. Mm. Don't use the, uh, use the adjective only in the predicate. The day was hot and bright and the houses looked sharply white. That's one of the last sentences in The Sun Also Rises. Mm. He uses the adjective in the predicate. The amateurs... Amateurs use it before the noun. It's because they don't trust their noun. Mm. The, the noun really should carry the image. So are there books that you read when you're, when you're writing? Or is it, you know, are there specific, because you want the inspiration or the, you know, the, not the motivation, but the, the, the influence of certain writers on your subconscious, maybe, if not your conscious, while you're, you know, typing away or writing away? Well, that I, I think that's kind of putting the cart on the wrong side of the, the, the horse. Mm. Um, it's a good question, but uh, it's during the learning period that you're reading it as a writer mm. or a writer or someone who wants to become a writer. That's most important, but more important than choice of readers or choice of books that one wants to read. More important is just the consciousness of wanting to tell the story that is in you. You don't want to go out and find it in somebody else. Mm. Okay, what you learn from other writers is how do you write good prose? What do you, who are the who are the ones that gave us the tools? Well it goes back to the caves in southern France, 35 a uh, thousand years ago, you know, the horses that are running, that's abstract art. How did these guys do it? I mean, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. You've seen the pictures or maybe mm -hmm. you've been there. I, I've just seen the pictures. But and the horses that are running, you can almost hear their, their hooves thundering across the stone inside the cave. Well, it's something obviously in human beings that it's, it's, it's in us. And so it's the same with writing. When you, you fall in love with writing, you fall in love with art, you fall in love with the world. Remember what Robert Frost said, how he described his art. 
he said it's a a lover's quarrel with the with the world, a lover's quarrel with the world. And you, what you don't do at any time in your career is read bad writing. Hmm. Read bad writing. If I were to, someone were to ask me, and no one has ever asked me this question, and I taught creative writing for years, which, which book would you read to really learn how to be a great writer? Well, if somebody would ask me that, I would say The Sound and the Fury, it's got it all. Hmm. In terms of experiment, in terms of dialogue, in terms of the impossible, nobody gets close to it. Ulysses, the novel Ulysses, great as it is, I don't think is as great as Faulkner's The Sound in the Fury. Mm. It's just absolutely stunning what mm. that man did. It's just, you know, and he, he was not well educated. I never, I think he took some classes when he came back from them. You know, Royal Canadian Air Force. He was mm. aviator for a while, but he read all. He read the classics all the time. See, mm. that's one that's lost. Like with civility, we've lost the classical world. Very few people are interested in it. Big mistake. Mm. <laughs> so when you, I mean, when you think back to the classics, are you? Do you still read? You know, Homer and Shakespeare and the pe- writers yeah, like that. Yeah, sure. All the great stories are back there. Why? It's probably, at least my feeling, as Carl Jung says, that there there is racial memory at work in our species. It's mm. we inherit. I say racial, meaning the species. Uh, it's in the unconscious. It's down there somewhere. The same symbols recur again and again all over the world, all over human history, like the running horses, you know, the, probably that they associated with thunder, you know, running across the sky, or the Celtic legend of uh, chasing the uh, <clears throat> horses across the sky. And uh, what was the name of the boat? The, the uh, Irish goddess, uh, Bridget, Bridget's bowl, the, the bowl that's uh, always filled, it never is exhausted. And this maybe you know, influenced a lot of ballads during uh, the, the Christian era. I mean, after, uh, you know, thousands of years of this, uh, these kinds of metaphors, uh, water, uh, hair associated with fertility, uh, the their numbers that seem to have holy meanings or mystical mm-hmm. meanings, but those things are in us. It's just a matter of discovering them. As my father said that art and science uh, are simply the incremental discovery of what already exists, what God has already made. That's how mm-hmm. he put it. Said so it's already there. You witness to it rather than creator of it. Hmm. I mean, all, all the tra- well, look, 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 look at what Freud did. Freud borrowed the uh, borrowed the terminology for his science from the Greeks, from the ancient Greeks. That all of he took the names of classical figures and the mythology that went with them to describe the various forms of neurosis that he uh, tried to treat in his patients. Mm. You know, the Oedipus complex, you can go on and <laughs> on and on. Those are all the stories are the way come with. The Greeks are the most poetic people probably in human history during the golden age of Pericles. All the plots and if you want plots, you can't beat the Greeks. How about Tennessee Williams? He took ancient Greece and dropped it right in the middle of the New Orleans French Quarter. <laughs> <laughs> so in your do you do you think do you see those things showing up, those influences showing up in your own books over the years? Oh yeah. I'm afraid I'm gonna be in trouble. You're like get upstairs. <laughs> I've been speaking from the Bible for over 60 years. <laughs> Do you have a particular book of yours? I don't know why this this flow of conversation prompted this question, but do you have a particular book of yours 
that you look back on and you're most proud of the way it turned out that maybe you didn't have a feel for it at first and then eventually it became something that you're really proud of? Wayfaring Stranger. You just described it. I started it. I, I, I began writing a short story and I finished the short story. I thought it was the perfect short story. My wife said that it's the perfect short story. But uh, I kept writing and I, I wrote my best book, Wayfaring Stranger. <laughs> Boy, it's a good book. It is a good book. Wow. The others, are, I, I'm proud of everything I've written, but this one, Wayfair and Stranger, is extraordinary. I can say that, not in praise of me, praise of the book. Do you, did you know that as you were writing, or did you get to the end and reread it and realize that you felt that when you were writing it? I knew it. Yeah. yeah. It's a big one. Yeah. Do you, do you, um, do you find that, I don't, Again, I'm not sure exactly why this question came to mind. Do you find that the books that you the books that you wrote, so your own books that you like the most, are also the books that your readers tend to like the most? Do you have any sense of that? Not, not, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, many of my best books are not the ones that did the best in terms of commercial yeah. success. So, but that's okay. Uh, I'm I'm really proud of the Dave Rover Show books, and uh, it's uh, I think they're a great series, and I think they they do something that maybe uh, others have not done, namely that it's not really a detective or a police series. It's it isn't it doesn't have anything to do with it actually, because, <laughs> except the world that particular world, the subculture mm -hmm. of crime and criminality. Uh, it's, uh, it's usually not portrayed as it actually is because it's horrible. It's just like a bathos of everything that's dysfunctional at best and evil at worst. But I, I'm really proud of that series, but on a level with some of the uh, work that I've written about the American frontier of the West, uh, I believe has it was more challenging for me because it's a much larger story. Mm -hmm. The Dave Rover Show story is a story of Louisiana, mm -hmm. but here's the caveat. It, Louisiana is a gift from God to the artist because it is emblematic of the entirety of American history. Everything that has occurred in our history occurred first in Louisiana, but it's still there. You can still hmm. see it. Hmm. Um, we lived on the Bayou, Bayou Tesh in New Iberia uh, many years. Actually, my family lived on the Bayou, has lived on the Bayou since 1836. Hmm. But we had trees on the, the yard, in the yard, live oak trees that were 200 years old. And in the heart of the tree were many balls. It's 1850, those are 58 caliber uh, rifle balls that were fired in there by Union and Confederate soldiers when hmm. Nathaniel Banks swept through southwestern Louisiana. It was just like oh, uh, Sherman in Georgia. Boy, they tore the place up. It was really nasty. But all of that was there, just growing up, just to put your hand on the tree and almost feel what was in that tree. That, that tree was witness to 25,000 Union soldiers who marched right past, right past our house. You know, you can almost see them as Dave Rover Show does. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, Faulkner said, the past is not even the past. It's still there. Hmm. That's, that's the gift that Southern writers have. They actually see it. Hmm. Uh, the stories hmm. are still there. My, my father knew people who were there when they never called them it's Yankees. They didn't call them Union soldiers. When the Yankees came through there and really torched it, they, they were... <laughs> <laughs> they were not welcome in town like but they did some bad stuff. They did, they they were turned loose on the civilian population. They were mm. it was it's like Sherman. Sherman was a terrorist. It was not he was a terrorist, no question about it. So he you were saying things. 
So uh, West, so then you also wrote these Western stories and that was more challenging for you. Yes, uh, because the story is larger and that also it is hard to dissuade people from, say, thinking of this as what's called a Western. And the man who influenced me about the American story was John Neihart. He (laughs) was the author of uh, Black Elk Speaks, and he was my poetry teacher. And I got to know him very well, my wife and I both, when we were in uh, school, University of Missouri. And he told me once, and uh, he, he was a, he was an extraordinary man. He knew Buffalo Bill Cody. He had a, hmm. a 45 revolver. I held it in my hand. Bill Cody gave it. But he hmm. told me, he said, Jim, always remember, he, he gave me great encouragement when I was only 20 years old. He said, Jim, always remember that the story, and the story is civilization, the story and civilization followed the sun. And he said, that's what we have done as a people, as an Occidental people. We have followed the sun across the continent to the ocean, but the, that sun is setting. And then he went on and he said, uh, we probably are at a time in our career when maybe we will wane as a nation while China is on the rise. I never forgot that. That was back in the night. That was 1957. He said that. You know, A.B. Guthrie was the other one. A.B. Guthrie is one of the most neglected writers in America. His book, The Big Sky, is I put it on the level with Ulysses. The prose in it, again, the breadth of the story. Golly, what a book! Never, never one ever talks about it. I can't understand it. It's like, you know, you've got Socrates in the middle (laughs) of the the elementary school. Nobody notices it. No, I I love Guthrie. I have a um, a friend. I have a friend who's a big fan of your books. Who was the one who told me about Guthrie? So, you know, that's that's a good compliment for you. Uh, he was he was a really nice gentleman too. He was. I taught his work, and our class would write him cards. We would write, you know, like birthday cards, <laughs> and he would write a thank you note. He was always a gentleman. So when you're when you're reading, are you are you do you mark up your books? Do you write in them, or or do you do you view books that you should not? You should leave them clean. You mean other people's? Yeah, other people's books. Yeah, when you're as a reader. Oh no, never, never. No, no. That's I, that's to me vandalism. <laughs> so, so do you? Well, so how how do you read that? What's your what's your strategy for reading? Do you have a way of keeping notes or or marking? How do you mark spots no. that you love? How do I? I'm, I don't mark anything. I don't. You mean other other people's work? Yeah. Do you I have like have. do you put do you put sticky notes in them? Do you just have bookmarks all through pages? Nope. Do you draw journal? No, nope. nope. nothing. I, I never have. I never would mm. uh, write write in the book. Someone else's work. I mean, you congratulate people. You don't emulate them. Mm. I mean, you have influences, and you know, they, some pieces become part of you. And mm. I think. I mean, that's natural, but uh, assimilation of the styles of others. And, uh, I, 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 it's just, I don't mean that it's part of a whole uh, procedure to I mean, deliberately not write down what others write. But usually, uh, if, you, if you find that line in a book, you don't need to write it down. It's with you for the mm. long haul. Like that line at the end of Heming, at the end of the sun also rises that you mentioned earlier. Oh yeah, yeah, that's it. Or call me Ishmael. Yeah. Well, think of it this way: every person has the same faculty at work in it. Every movie or great movie has a line that nobody saw coming, and when the audience leaves, they know their part. They are always going to remember a certain line in there. But it's never the one that probably the writer or the 
director was thinking about. Mm. Uh, oh, you remember, uh, hey, I'm walking here. <laughs> <laughs> How about in The Treasure of Sierra Madre? Mm. Here's Humphrey Bogart, who is surrounded by, you remember, Mexican bandits? Mm-hmm. You know, they're really in trouble. And here's this just worthless person. And yeah. he says, nobody's putting anything over on what's it? Uh, something, 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 whatever its name is. Dobbs, W.C. Oh, yeah. Dobbs. <laughs> gives himself this grandiose introduction. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as a writer, do you, do you have you found that there's lines that you wrote that you thought were going to be these great lines that people were going to remember and then nobody did, but then sometimes people remember lines or even moments that you thought were going to be sort of commonplace? Uh, well, I know I, 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 I don't believe that art is really a thinking process most yeah. of the time, mm-hmm. but it depends on how people work. I mean, if people, there are people who outline, they outline, uh, their yeah. books and um, I don't, but but this is what I subscribe to. And I, I go back to what I said about Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway was asked that question about uh, at least part of your question or the inference of the question. Uh, he says, "If I knew the end of a story, so would the reader." Hmm. I don't choose this. This is just how I write. Yeah. that I never see more than two scenes ahead. I don't know where the story is coming. And when I write the first line, I do not know where the story is going, and I never know how they end. And then when I get to the end, that I realize this is the only way it could have end, ended, and this is the only story that I really wanted to write but never saw it coming. Mm. And uh, John, uh, anyway, I can't remember. But his point was that I think he used a metaphor. He said, writing a story is like walking into a bare room that has many doors painted on the wall, but only one is operational. Mm -hmm. And he says, when you find that door, you discover it is the only door that could have gotten you out of the room. And uh, Mm -hmm. that's pretty well put, but... Mm -hmm. In other words, uh, it's kind of a mystery in itself. And people use that term, of course, for a genre. But all art is a mystery. It is, like my father said, an incremental discovery of what already is there. But uh, Do you find, as a writer, when you're sitting down and you have that first sentence or that first scene or two, and you don't know where it's going to go, do you find that exciting or does it give you anxiety? <laughs> or maybe both? Well, I just don't think in those terms. It's uh, That's fair. It just, the, the, again and again, you see, the id is the enemy and self-consciousness is the enemy. Mm. And Steinbeck, again, Steinbeck, talked about someone asked him something about his you know travels with Charlie in in the West in Montana and he said Montana is not a state it's a love affair. Mm. You don't you don't you don't think about these things. It's a mm. love affair. Mm. You don't you don't define it. Uh, the artist defines it in an aggregate of what Mm. images, people, and revelations, historical moments. But it's because not of those things. It's the love affair that he has with them. That's what he brings to his art. Mm. And you cannot think your way through your art. Look, they're people. I'm not knocking them. Uh, they make a fortune uh manufacturing books, they hire five five or six fellows, women, and they put it on the conveyor belt and they, they have chapters that are one and a half pages long. It's great and all that, but it's not art. It's it's something else, it's not bad, but it's not art. Hmm. It's uh, a surrogate. I never quite understood. I think it has to do with, uh, oh, our culture, travel, people want something sharp they can read on a 
you know, 30 minute trip someplace. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but it's not art. You know, mm -hmm. art again is an emotional relationship with the world. And one of my old characters, Hackberry Holland, uh, mm -hmm. uh, plays the role of the Texas uh, portrayed portrayed in my books as a uh, Texas Ranger. Hackberry says that uh, that he advises his grandchild. He says, "Be be the lover of both the of God and the world, and neither is." Uh, in effect, at the cost of the other. Mm. Mm. But that's it. That's what the artist does. Mm. That's what the artist does. He does not proselytize. He does not direct. He does not even contemplate the intention of his story. It's there. It's Jackson Pollock flinging the paint. <laughs> that's what an artist is. Mm. So, yeah. okay. This might be kind of a pedantic question. You're talking about the idea of there's this discovery. It's Jackson Pollock flinging the art. So for you then, what role do you, how do you think about the, the idea of form in storytelling? There's, the, there's Jackson Pollock throwing it, but there is still, is there still a, are, are you still focusing maybe in the revision stage on, on structure and form and, and, and those sorts of things? That's big. That's it. Rewriting. And I learned, I remember I said this of myself when I was, I went 13 years in the middle of my career and I couldn't sell anything. And I wrote all during that time. Mm. And I mean, I wrote and still mm. couldn't sell anything. And the uh, form, form hat comes in one, one fashion or another. But I learned I was as good or better a writer as a rewriter than I was an extemporaneous writer. But all great art is never quite finished. Every artist knows that. There's always that obsession. I can make it better. I can make it better. In my case, I aim for 750 words a day. I hope to get that. And that's a long day. And then in the morning, I rewrite it. And then I start the new 750 words a day. And I do it seven days a week with no days off for any reason unless it's imperative. So um, those things, yeah, are part of form. Now, like during the beat era, I, there was a lot of, there's some really good writers around, of course, like Jack Kerouac, but there were a lot who were not, but they were guys who were throwing the paint on the canvas. <laughs> it was paint that didn't match or they hit the wall instead of the canvas mm. and they somehow justify it because they didn't have any talent that was their problem yeah. but you've got to, you've got to learn how to do it you've got to learn how to do it okay for example that how do you write good dialogue you don't write good dialogue you hear it a good writer is a good listener mm. Mm. Do you have to be a little more? You so you mentioned that there is self-consciousness, self-awareness or whatever is, can be an enemy. When you're in the rewriting stage, do you have to be, is that still the case even in the rewriting stage when it, maybe it's less about, there's less about instinct and you have to be a little more precise in what you're trying to accomplish? Or would you say it's still the enemy even in the rewriting stage? Well, I, I think we're still talking here and about uh, ways of the formulaic, not form anymore. Okay. These are yeah. I mean, formulas. And it yeah. just it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean the person cannot publish. Right. But I don't know. I've never understood uh, where any of my characters come from. I guess and sometimes years later, I look back and I say, yeah, gee, yeah. I remember that person <laughs> yeah. was real in this instance, but yeah. the characters seem to live on their own. They, you, you can't control them. This is how I think of it. That it's like writing on the, on water with your hand, with your finger. That's it. Mm. That's as much form as you get. 
and it has to be there. And it's, for example, <clears throat> that, oh, golly, there are people who are autistic savants who play Beethoven and they can't read music and no one taught them how to use the keys. Where does mm -hmm. that come from? No one can explain it, mm -hmm. but it's, it's obviously real. My own feeling is that creativity is in all of us, but it's a matter of recognition. And I go back and back and back again to the same logos, namely the intelligence that governs art. It's out there in the world, but you have to be an observer of it. You cannot just acquire it. You cannot learn it from uh, others. Not, oh, you can learn certain things about don't put the adjective in the in front of the noun, you know, that's not a real, you know, burst of intellectuality working here. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be immersed in humanity. And of course, you know, the old rule was, I mean, you'd hear this years ago, but for whatever reason, there are reasons for this not being the truth. You don't hear this, this statement anymore. Write about what you know. Mm -hmm. okay, that's really the first rule and if you don't know about it you could ask yourself why do I not know about it and why do I not know about this but most of the things that we wish to write about we've already acquired we've seen them, we've thought about them we've heard about them there's something that calls us to them now when I say you don't we don't hear that write about what you know about why is that because I think motion pictures, uh, mo motion picture culture has changed dramatically. And of course, film has had a tremendous influence on literature, as vice mm -hmm. versa. But today, the temptation is to use technology to make films, robotic figures beating each other up, <laughs> crunching New York into rubble, that sort of thing. They yeah. make fortune, fortunes making this stuff. It's junk. It's just, I mean, maybe it's nice junk, I guess, but I, I don't see the attraction. But nonetheless, the Hollywood of, of tradition, it's gone. But my own feeling, I'd say if I taught creative writing today and I had the technology, I would bring movies to class and say, let's start with The Godfather, Godfather 1. Why is this such a great film? Answer, its structure is the same as the Canterbury Tales. Every scene is a story. You can go right through the screenplay and you think, my God, look what this guy did. It's right out of the 14th century in the best way. So every character in some way represents some kind of... Um, morality or lack of morality, mm. but it's really the story of the Canterbury Tales. It's a march finally into death. Mm. But what a film. And <clears throat> you remember you, it opens there with a wedding party, but by the time that scene is over, you know everything about these people. Mm. Wow. <laughs> You know the story about the end of the film? Do you remember in the, the film that mm -hmm. Godfather won mm -hmm. during the mm -hmm. baptism? They didn't know how to end it. And then Puzo, Mario Puzo, then said, show the baptism. And during the baptism, cut to the scenes where the murders are going on all over the city with shotguns mm. and use the organ music to bleed into those murder scenes. Mm. Wow, that was it. It's one of the most stunning climaxes in a film in movie yeah. history. Yeah. That's how you learn. If you got to learn it from somewhere, these guys aren't bad. People, I don't know why. I don't know why. We were at war with Hollywood. Conservatives love to denigrate Hollywood. Hollywood is the American cathedral. We're the only nation that elects them to public office, including the presidency. Huh. Go figure that. <laughs> this is, Hollywood's an awful place. <laughs> the people who live 
live in the most terrible dumps in the country. People who think hanging around the filling station on Saturday night is a big event. When they go on vacation, they go to Hollywood. (laughs) Why is that? They go to visit San Francisco, the place they supposedly hate. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty ironic. Hey, I've kept you long. I've kept you long, little longer than I said. I've got a couple. I've got two final questions for you about about books. Do you have any prized book possessions? Any you know older books or things like that that you just that you treasure? Well, I, I have many I, because I've known writers for so yeah. many years. Uh, I have many. I have a signed book uh, with a little kind of essay in it written by Lester Hemingway. Uh, I really like I, I knew him. And he was a friend. And, uh, mm. <laughs> he had the greatest sense of humor in the world. And he lived on an island in Biscayne Bay right across the channel from Richard Nixon. (laughs) I don't want to tell you. That's a long story. (laughs) Anyway, books like that, friends, yeah, they're they're special because uh, they signed and then Charles Williford was a good friend of mine. His name's not known widely now, but I I was always a great admirer of Charles and I had signed books from him. Writers are... uh, and particularly people who write crime and mystery books are, are generally very good people and, and fun to be around. And, and in part, particularly uh, crime, what are called crime and mystery writers, mm-hmm. uh, very humble about their success. And, uh, mm. Again, fun to be, be around. Is there, you know, my other, this is, this leads me to my other question. Is there a, a writer who is working today who you think should be better known? Is there a writer who should be known today? Oh, uh, someone who maybe isn't as well known as you think they should be. Good question. Well, of course, you know, I mentioned, you know, Guthrie, and of course, you know, he's passed away, but his work should not have passed away. And John Nyhart, uh, also Ron Hansen is a fellow that just, Ron's successful. I mean, you know, as a screenwriter and, uh, Mm-hmm. And his books are recognized, I know, but just not in the way that he should. I mean, his first book was Desperados, the story of the Dalton Gang. Mm-hmm. And his book, uh, Marriott in Ecstasy, is probably the best metaphysical mystery. And it's really a mystery about, you know, golly, good and evil ever mm-hmm. written. Mm-hmm. And uh He's got a book, a collection of stories. I think its title is just Nebraska. But Ron has tremendous talent and it's never been, I don't think he's ever been given his due as a writer. And he's a writer. He just lives to write. My first cousin, Andre Debus mm-hmm. Sr., is, I think, America's best short story. This Faulkner and Hemingway both wrote probably five perfect stories. Andre Debus Jr. wrote 20. He was a master. Mm. And uh, he's, you never hear his name mentioned anymore. And Andre, uh, since we were kids, we grew up together four months apart. Mm. Andre never wanted to be anything but a writer. Neither did I. Neither of us ever wanted to be anything but a writer. Mm. But boy, he's, it turns perfection. It's like Flannery O'Connor, you can take Flannery O'Connor's work and pop the page and not a punctuation mark will rattle. Mm. It's perfect prose. You know, gee, you're not, boy, you know, you don't hear her name anymore. Mm. Uh, I, I'm afraid that culturally in our country, we're in trouble. It, a lot a lot has been accomplished you know, with the beginnings of the civil rights movement in the late 1950s. But like the loss of civility, we've lost some other things too. And a lot of it has to do with our respect for great art. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I hate to end this on that dour note. <laughs> well, maybe it put something a little brighter to say that. <laughs> 
a, a lot of let's put it this way the, the, again this is one person's opinion mm-hmm. but I think yeah. the American literary heritage is the greatest in the world greatest greater than during the British Renaissance that the if you want to country to learn about writing about uh, learn writing uh, this is this is it and Nathaniel Hawthorne I think began American literature some people say really the founder of short story was Poe well that's true and, but he Poe was not the writer that mm. Hawthorne was all of them all those early writers were great writers and they, they had really hard times. And we were writing with a quill. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had Xeroxes today and the internet, the computer. Was <laughs> yeah. They didn't even have a pencil. They didn't even have a pencil. <laughs> so wait, uh, before I let you go, I, I'd love to hear you say a little bit more. When you talk about how the greatest literary heritage is, is American literature, you were talking earlier about how the Greeks were, were these amazing dramatists when you're talking about america do you mean in terms of how they how the how american literature sort of refined the form of written storytelling and refined there's this like in terms of what american prose is is that what you're talking about well uh it's a combination of things i guess because of a uh, newspaper publications and you know charles dickens and uh, yeah. in england uh, people could, uh, middle class people could make a living as writers. Mm-hmm. You know, Twain was the most commercially successful man of his career. but uh, And of course, the readership grew and grew. But I, I think also the American experience is unique. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. I don't think we give ourselves that credit. And in many ways, it has been forgotten, but we are still the light of the world. We are admired by the entire globe. We, are, we make enemies of the people who want to be like us. Uh, for example, who are enemies? You know, little countries down in the Caribbean someplace. The people supposedly who hate us are actually envious of us. I I learned that in Amnesty International. I was in Amnesty International nine years, and we were trying to help out some fellow who was in jail in Soviet Union, and we tried to help his family with money. Well, we couldn't get money to to the family. Instead, we sent them Levi Blue Jeans because they could be sold on the streets of Moscow for 300 American dollars. Okay, how about the Japanese with whom we fought a war? They love everything America. What's the national sport in El Salvador and Cuba? Baseball. Mm -hmm. I mean, they love rock and roll. They love American movies. Even Hitler loved American movies. Why do you have to fear people who want what who want to be like you? But this is the point that the American dream is not having, I don't know, five refrigerators in your house. The American dream is the Constitution. It is the document that every emerging country tries to emulate. And we that is lost on us. And as a consequence, demagogues have, in effect, hijacked our entire system. They have used religion and conflated it with football and militaristic philosophies. Mm. And it's very frightening. Mm. Do you, so these troubles that you're talking about, do you see the artists as the, I mean, do you, do you have sort of a high view of art's potential to, change the tide of things no number one it it should not art should not proselytize it can tell the story of what occurred but it's still the story Mm. it isn't that the artists i think can make an influence on political affairs but what does occur is that demagogues 
fear the artists. Mm. They're the ones that punishes, art destroys and kills mm. uh, first. He always is, the demagogue always fears the light bearer. And that's ultimately what artist is. He's the light bearer. Mm. But they go to the wall. Well, that is a that is a less dour. The artist says the light bearer. That that might be a good place to end. <laughs> okay. I'm really grateful for you spending some time with me and getting to hear some of your stories and some of your thoughts. This has been wonderful. Well, that was James Lee Burke. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. His new book is Another Kind of Eden, and it's available wherever books are sold. Of course, if you'd like to order from Goldberry Books, you can head over to bookshop.org slash shop slash Goldberry Books. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to tell your friends about the show in whatever form you'd like. We'd certainly appreciate it. For all of us here at Goldberry Books, I'm David Kern. Until next time, happy reading.